Hello and welcome everyone to this episode of the STEMcast podcast. The goal of our podcast is to create an accessible resource for students at all levels of STEM to be mentored by leading professionals and advance their careers. Your hosts for today's podcast are myself, Derek, and Albert. Atherosclerosis is one of the most prevalent diseases that we face today as a society, and currently we have very few effective therapeutics against it. And so we're extremely lucky right now to have with us Dr. Howe, who's both pushing the frontiers of our knowledge on atherosclerosis and also treating atherosclerosis and other vascular diseases surgically as well. So Dr. Howe, it's great to have you and thank you for coming. Thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. All right, so let's get started. Um, Why don't you give us a brief introduction about yourself, uh, where you work and uh, what you do? Sure. Um, So my name is Catherine, Catherine Howe. I'm at uh, the University Health Network, which is also part of the Peter Monk Cardiac Centre here at University of Toronto. Um, It's a lot of different labels, but you'll realize as eventually you start your jobs, there's there's often more than one title or one hat that you wear. And so that leads me to tell you what I do, which is that I'm a surgeon and also a scientist. So I have two jobs, um, both of which really are their own to try to do well. And so you can imagine um, it's tough trying to balance the two, but you know, you work to find what that balance is for you. And that's what I think we've got for now. Um, so it means as a scientist, you have to sort of think, what is it that you're actually going to be researching? And for me, it does dovetail with what I do clinically. So it's looking at a carotid uh, atherosclerosis and specifically the disease that leads to stroke, which is for some people, it's the fact that they develop a more vulnerable plaque, something that's going to predispose them to stroke, which I'm sure we'll talk about later. So I work in a big city in Toronto. Um, we are not a trauma hospital, so there's no trauma that comes through here on a planned uh, day, but you know, things, anything can happen and vascular is almost always an emergency. So, um, or at least it's on the brink of an emergency. So a lot of what I do is trying to juggle all those hats and, and the acuity that comes with some of those things. Hmm. Uh, and so um, kind of, you, you mentioned like you're, you're a researcher and a surgeon at the same time. So uh, can you kind of elaborate a little bit on like the journey you took to get there? Um, yeah, certainly. Yeah. Um, so there's there's sort of a linear path and non-linear. I would say I, I've done the non-linear path that I'll get into, but the nuts and bolts of um, getting to this point and having this specific career is that I, I did do with my PhD. I did my undergraduate in basic science um, uh, in biology specifically, and I did do uh, medical school and obviously uh, subspecialty training. Um, my non-linear path is that it wasn't sort of um, whatever you might think is the usual order of events. So I'll just tell you mine, but understand there's more than one way to get to to uh, achieve these different checkboxes, if you will. So I did my undergraduate first at um, McMaster University in Hamilton, Ontario. Um, that was in biology. And then I, I really, really fell in love during my fourth year uh, thesis project with science. Um, and it hadn't been my upfront plan to, to become a scientist, but it was just sort of following a curiosity and, and really enjoying the lab environment and the person I was working with. So that morphed into starting a master's, which quickly transformed into a PhD program. Um, and when I completed that, the sort of lingering thoughts that I'd had around medical school had not dissipated. I'd worked with a lot of people um, that had been uh, physicians that were doing research in the labs around me, and it kept a lot of those discussions and thoughts alive. And so I went to medical school at University of Toronto, finally leaving McMaster after both the undergrad and the grad degree. And when I came to U of T, um, you know, I didn't know for sure what I'd want to do. In fact, I was pretty sure I'd do anything but surgery. I was um, assuming I'd probably do something in gastroenterology, given my research has been in GI. Um, And in the end, in the first year of medical school, I fell in love with um, the brain and behavior unit. And I actually started as a neurosurgeon. So meaning um, when I finished medical school, I started my residency training in neurosurgery. 
And I did three years at the program here at U of T. And uh, it's a brilliant program with brilliant uh, mentors. But partway along that journey, I lost my dad to brain trauma. And it just shifted for me, um, essentially, how I thought I could put together my life uh, again after that. And it took a while to figure that out. But I realized I needed to be somewhere different. And so it took a bit of time to figure it out. But I ended up ultimately doing more research stints, having a short time in family medicine and being in general surgery where I landed uh, in vascular. And really, I see that as if it wasn't intentional. But when I reflect back, some of my earliest experiences as a resident, which is somebody who's training, was in vascular surgery, and I loved it. But I hadn't been prepared to sort of jump ship at that time. Everything was, uh, you know, going fine, and there hadn't been any major family events at that time. So, you know, in retrospect, all the dots connect. Even in neurosurgery, I wanted to do cerebrovascular, um, which is dealing with aneurysms and uh, brain make, like AV malformations, etc. So, you know, in the end, everything kind of makes sense, kind of the Steve Jobs line, right? But um, that's been the non-linear path that I've taken. Lots of people will give you a much more direct story. Um, but I think one thing, if I can impart it to all of you, is that we all have our own path and our own journey, and all of them make us who we are at any moment in time. And there's there's always more than one route to get somewhere. Um, so I, I guess I'd sort of share that with you, at least to have it in the back of your minds as you guys plan your own journeys. Yeah, thank you so much for that advice. Um, so you talked about how you sort of jumped ship. So is that sort of what inspired you to go uh, specifically into vascular research? And do you want to talk a little bit more about in depth about what your research is and what impact you hope to have through the research? Absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, for me, it's personal as well. Uh, we've had family members with stroke. Um, and I'm pretty sure that if you haven't yet, at some point, every single person that's listening to this will have experienced a family or a friend or a community member that they know directly that suffered from a stroke. So um, strokes can be caused by a lot of things, but one of the common causes can be due to atherosclerotic disease of the carotid arteries, which are the blood vessels in the front of the neck. You might see them in the movies when they're spurting. Um, that carotid artery, when it develops plaque, uh, if that plaque becomes unstable or vulnerable, it can um, create either locally at that location, that is uh, thrombus, meaning clot, or it can have essentially something that forms clot, but then that travels distantly, meaning north towards the brain, and ends up landing in sort of ultimately the path of least resistance, which is an end artery. And if it's an eloquent brain, as we would call it, meaning an area that codes for um, speech or motor or sensory function, you have what's then a, a stroke, whether it's completed or not completed, meaning um, it's reversible. So the TIA or transient ischemic, ischemic attacks. But the point of um, thinking about those plaques is that at the end of the day, lots of us have plaques. Over a lifetime, we're all building up a bit of atherosclerosis. But the real unknown and million-dollar question is figuring out which of those plaques are going to behave the way I've just described, where they're going to be vulnerable and cause a stroke, and which ones you can leave alone because they'll probably never be a problem for that person's lifetime. You know, we have great medical management overall. We have lots of advice over lifestyle. And even if people undertake all of that, they still can be at risk of a stroke due to these vulnerable plaques. And so for me, it's the million dollar question that I'm seeking to answer, which is how do I identify them? And so the research we do is looking at how those plaques develop biologically and also separately asking if there happen to be biomarkers in the bloodstream that let us maybe have a way to predict in advance. And so that's really trying to blend what I can do in the laboratory with my basic science experience and colleagues that I work with, along with patient tissue and patient samples that allow us to really ask a question that in the moment has a translational 
impact as opposed to developing an animal model and 10 years down the line you realize oh, oh this doesn't quite answer the question we got to start again i don't i'd like to dovetail them at the same time so that we hopefully have them inform one another i think that's a great aspect of doing an md and a phd at the same time because you sort of have both of those experiences and you can combine them together it lets you do stuff that you know someone with a phd or someone with an md wouldn't actually be be able to do just alone um so why don't we talk a little bit about the coronavirus pandemic? So obviously it's it's disrupted all of our lives, but how have you and your job adapted to it? And does the coronavirus have, and sort of the pathology of the disease, does that have any relation with the research that you do? Oh, that's a great question. Um, so the first answer is that, yes, it's forced everybody to adapt. Uh, you know, yourselves at home is you have to figure out where you're going to do your studies and what summer jobs you're going to have, et cetera. You've seen it's impacted every person at every walk and stage of life. Uh, in the hospitals, it's forced us to be hyper-adaptive. And I say that intentionally, meaning, you know, every couple of weeks, there might be a slightly different algorithm that we have to undertake. We have to shift up or shift down our surgical volumes in response to knowing that the ICU beds are needed for patients that are really sick from COVID. The problem is every other disease process is still going on despite COVID. So we know that there are a lot of diseases that are having ongoing uh, complications, ongoing um, uh, surgical needs that aren't being met right now. And so we see that in the delayed presentation. Patients are more sick. They arrive at a later stage of their disease. Um, there's sort of been a lot written about it from the cardiovascular standpoint where you're hearing about heart attacks and strokes that may or may not have all been picked up. Again, I think the literature it continues to move and, and point to new data, but the point is we're all having to adapt routinely. Where it, it has um, crossed a road for me is that one of the things early on in the um, pandemic, when we started as a lab, a group of us thinking about uh, SARS-CoV-1, which was the one from 2003, and this one is understanding that, wow, there's a, a real link here between the people that seem to be the most vulnerable, at least in the first wave, which are cardiovascular disease history, and the fact that we know the endothelial cell seems to have a potential role in, in COVID-19 and even back in COVID-1, if you will, or SARS-CoV-1. And so it led a group of us in the lab, myself and a senior mentor, Jason Fish, along with several PhD students and uh, master students that are part of our team to write a, a review article putting together the early data that existed on this pandemic and the endothelial um, aspect to it or the question that we would ask. And in fact, it then led to uh, us being part of a multidisciplinary group where we're doing research right now, trying to look at COVID-19 biomarkers to help try to understand who might be at greater risk for landing in the ICU. And is there a way to predict that upfront as they walk into the emergency department? So we've teamed up with uh, actually heart specialists, so cardiologists that are also researchers who are doing cardiovascular imaging, looking at imaging of the heart. Um, and so there's a really nice blended project that we're working on right now that is trying to get at the, uh, you know, understanding the, the basic biology, if you will, and ultimately how we can maybe manage this better. Um, you know, and even though we're in wave three, we've had a lot of knowledge that's been gleaned over the last one year. There's still a lot we don't know. And so there are others in this institution that are collaborating with people all over the world, work, working on new animal models to try to make sure that we don't just drop the ball the minute the pandemic hopefully is over, that we have sort of some lasting information and application to making sure that this never happens again. And what techniques are you using to approach this and to sort of, you know, uh, derive a link between COVID and, uh, and vascular diseases? Do you use, um, what technologies do you use? What approaches do you take? 
Yeah, so it's a few things. So some of it is using um, our understanding of the patients and having all of their clinical data to put together to understand how do we at least group them appropriately. Some of it is having access to patient plasma or their blood samples and testing that for um, different disease profiles, if you will, with uh, something I'll get into later called microRNA. Um, And some of it is uh, actually then looking in the laboratory at endothelial cells and saying, how are they behaving when they get um, exposed to patient plasma, or again, this is in collaboration with others, but you know, we're eventually going to be looking at what happens when you actually expose the endothelial cells specifically to COVID-19 or SARS-CoV-2. So there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of back and forth. You probably heard the term bench to bedside and back to bench again. And that idea that the, the one idea informs the other, but you have to keep going back and forth. It's really an iterative process. So we're using essentially clinical data, clinical samples, um, and then in vitro cell culture work that we're doing and others, we just had a great presentation by some colleagues yesterday, but there's, there's, and people here in Toronto working on animal models as well. That's interesting. So I guess that kind of also highlights how like dynamic these research fields are, cause they're always adapting to the current situation. Um, so for, specifically from you throughout your path of research, I guess you've kind of seen like the field of atherosclerosis and strokes and you kind of seen its transition or change. So Specifically, have you observed uh, certain things about the field that changed maybe over the course of your research career? Um, you know, that's a great question. And, and the reality is there's a lot of different uh, sources of stroke. So when I think about it from the area that I know best, which is carotid atherosclerotic disease, one of the things that's emerging in the field, and it's not just for carotid atherosclerotic disease, it's atherosclerosis throughout the body. So in the heart, blood vessels, the coronary arteries, other parts of the body, et cetera, is really the idea of understanding this plaque biology. And it's, of course, a bias answer I'm giving you, right? I You only know because you're looking for it anyways, right? So I'm looking in the literature to try to better understand my own fields. So when I tell you about the emerging neat things that are happening, it's because I'm looking. But there's a lot of really neat data coming out as we start to use new tools and omics tools. So uh, single cell sequencing and uh, omics, meaning proteomics, genomics, transcriptomics. There's sort of a lot of omics going on right now, but trying to understand how do we better put together the view of the microenvironment that's happening in the plaque. How do we better understand what cells exist, what how the cells are communicating to one another, and what they're doing that actually changes over a course of the, the plaque's lifetime, if you will. And so I think that we're seeing, one of the key things we're seeing right now with single cell sequencing in particular is that what was once always just called a macrophage or called a certain type of cell, we're now realizing, wow, there's several different types. In fact, almost like, again, not to be maybe too far outside of my field, but the same idea that, you know, we just, things aren't always black and white. There's a lot of gray in life and same with even, you know, our own identity, right? And so, you know, when I look at the plaque biology, I think that that's the exact same thing we're starting to see now, which is that there's this shift in understanding who the players are and where we are in a moment in time might look very different than two years later when we look at that same plaque. And so there's a really, a lot of neat and fast moving literature on plaque biology. And so for single cell RNA sequencing, I personally have done some work with it and I think it's extremely exciting. Um, with that, what are you finding in, in atherosclerotic plaques, for example? Um, and do you want to talk a little bit about your findings with your research and with microRNAs? Sure. Yeah. So our research has not yet been on single cell sequencing. I bring that up because I think it's really some neat work being done by colleagues in the field. Um, And, you know, for me, again, it's where I'm looking. But when I think about the endothelial cells being this governing cell where they line every single blood vessel of the body, they sit at an interface between blood and 
the cells that live below them in the blood vessel wall, they are very similar to the research that I did many, many years ago in the GI system, where you had epithelial cells that lined the inner lining of the intestine exposed to lots of different things and very similar cell types that lived below them in the different layers of the intestinal wall. And so this is where my sort of jumping between two different research fields, but really having that same sort of thought process going on, which is just that you've got a cell where their only job is to really try to govern the behavior of the cells that live below them and help protect them from potentially toxic or bad things that are floating around above them. And so in part of that work that we're doing, we're looking at the endothelial cell. And so the first point around single cell sequencing is that we're seeing that some uh, new research just, just starting to emerge now. I think it's still only in bioarchives, but seeing that some of the cells really are endothelial derived, but they've become another cell type, this idea of transitioning. And so again, once again, something is not always a static process or as it first appears. And so when I think about the endothelial cell in our work, one of the things we're trying to get at is saying, listen, a plaque doesn't develop overnight. They've had a lifetime of developing, right? And so the cells that we know that are the key players that we've talked about for years and decades, it's really been the macrophages, the monocytes, the smooth muscle cells in particular right now. Um, but what's the overlying governing cell? It's the endothelial cell. It's constantly exposed to potentially cigarette toxin, to dyslipidemia or high cholesterol. It's exposed to um, potentially high blood pressure, right? You can think of all the different things it's got to decide, is, is it going to respond and maybe send a signal that might be a message that stimulates this chronic process of inflammation. And so that's where our research tries to come in to say, listen, how does over a lifetime of that kind of constant insults how do you get an endothelial cell that might be communicating things positively or negatively to regulate the environment below? And so that's where our work is trying to get at this idea of communication between an endothelial cell and any other cell type that lives nearby, which is releasing packages of information. So something called extracellular vesicles, which are nano-sized particles that can contain a lot of different things, including non-coding RNA, something called microRNA. It can also have proteins, it can have lipids, it can have lots of things, but we've really been right now anyways, focusing on the microRNA and the packages of microRNA that are being delivered in these extracellular vesicles, that as they get taken up by another cell that lives below, so a macrophage or a vascular smooth muscle cell, they now have this uptake of non-coding RNA, but it actually does stuff. It actually regulates the proteins in that cell. And so you can see how that can affect change. And over the course of a long period, you can really envision how that might then transform something over the, um, the biology of that plaque and the lifetime of that, of that being. And so I, I'm, I guess from that, um, there's probably a specific, at least vascular disorders that you maybe see more frequently or that maybe come up more often than others. So in your uh, personal experience, when you're doing surgery, what are some of those um, vascular disorders that you would actually specialize in treating? So when you... Uh, so number one, actually, atherosclerosis is probably the, one of the biggest common um, denominators for a lot of our patients, right? So the, the lifetime of potentially, uh, there's a risk of smoking, high blood pressure, high cholesterol, genetics, et cetera. But atherosclerotic disease really is, I would say, the, the biggest um, culprit when we think about uh, something that's contributed to vascular disease. When you talk about the things that are uh, potentially very specific and isolated only to the vascular system, there are disorders, there are connective tissue diseases, et cetera, but they are fairly rare, thankfully, because they are actually not that, they're not that 
simple to treat. They they come with usually weakened blood vessel walls and difficulty in deciding how to treat them and how to manage them surgically. So, you know, we see a wide range, but if I had to tell you the honest truth, it really the, the culprit group um, of diseases is really atherosclerotic disease and the sort of uh, consequences of that, which include peripheral vascular disease. So people at risk of losing a limb, uh, stroke, which we've talked about. So carotid atherosclerotic disease, um, disease of the blood vessels, which are managed by cardiac surgeons, obviously, if it's the heart blood vessel. Um, you know, there's a, there's a lot of different processes and diseases in the body that are actually governed by or regulated, if you will, by atherosclerotic disease, right? So um, kidney function, et cetera. Um, you know, the one other area where you can't always attribute atherosclerotic disease, but it's a lot of the common risk factors of smoking, dyslipidemia, hyper, high blood pressure, et cetera, has been aneurysms as well. So that's something that's very specific to us, especially in vascular surgery, where you get essentially a dilatation of the blood vessel wall, and kind of like as you blow up a balloon, that that dilatation at some point weakens the, the wall enough that it can rupture. And when something is housing the biggest pipe of your body with the biggest amount of blood pressure at any moment in time, that that often leads to, unfortunately, that leads to death. And so when we know that these exist, we surveil them and we sort of have to manage then a risk-benefit discussion with patients around when should we intervene. Because even treating them come with a risk. So just saying, well, because you have it, we should treat it isn't the right answer. So it's a, it's a lot of um, long-term conversations with patients as you follow them over a period of time and help guide them through the process of decision-making that can change, you know, every five years, depending on, on the disease process as it's uh, unfolding. And so kind of combining your research and uh, the, the, the medical side, you talked about how now we're sort of emerging a more personalized medicine where we're seeing some patients are more at risk of, for example, uh, we talked about COVID in, in particular. So how, but with respect to your research, how are findings in the lab starting to be applied in the operating room and in patient care? Um, is there more personalization to it? Not yet, to give you a fair answer, not yet. I think um, it's been a really hot topic and there's been a lot of um, moving of the needle, but I don't think that we've seen it happen just yet, not in vascular. I think it's coming, um, but it requires, you know, bench research takes time. And so that's the other piece of advice if I leave you leave you with it. If you have the curiosity, that's got to be what drives you in the first place because it's not a, it's not usually a, that there's a quick answer to things. Um, it's exciting to pursue, but there's a lot of times where you're, you're going to have to struggle and redirect and, and think about another way to ask your question to get at it. Um, when it comes to personalized medicine, um, we'll get there. And I think it's going to be as probably the next 10 years unfold. And a lot of that will probably be AI, where we start to bring in artificial intelligence, deep learning, and a way to use a non-human approach by seeing patterns that maybe we've not seen in some of the standard fare imaging approaches that we use all the time in our patients. And so one area that we have an interest in, but it's not anywhere that I've done nearly any major research yet, but I'll just put it on the table so we can at least talk about it, um, is the idea of saying, listen, we use ultrasound, something, a very specific type of ultrasound for a lot of vascular diseases called a, a duplex. It allows you to not just look at that black and white kind of fuzzy picture you think of when you think of an ultrasound, but it lets us look at blood flow and the, the speed of blood flow, the pulsatility of the blood flow. There's a lot of information that gets contained in those. They, they have no invasiveness to them. There's absolutely no needles. There's no poking. There's just a probe that's placed over some ultrasound goo. Um, and there's no dye. So we haven't had to tackle the kidneys at all with anything that they don't want. And so there's really um, a unique opportunity to say, how can we translate that data 
look for patterns that we've not picked up as humans and use that to better understand potentially the vulnerable plaque, potentially pick up disease processes long before the human eye would. And so if you ask me, do I think it's coming? Yes. Is it here yet? No. Um, but I think AI will be the, the big intermediary. And so that's been huge as the world is starting to see that there's a, a lot of application. And so as new students come through and they get really good at coding and learning about the things that are really useful in AI, you can start to see where those different skills that never existed 20 years ago would be um, highly sought after now when you think about uh, jobs and how to put together your own career paths. Um, and so um, I think people would generally have a pretty, at least it would be easier for people to kind of um, uh, imagine how it looks like to just be a surgeon or to just be a researcher, because you have that, you have your one job and then that's what you do. But um, I guess you're a unique case where you you actually do both. So for people um, to understand better, how would your like normal day look like as being not only a physician, but also a scientist? Yeah, I guess the first thing is to say as much as you try to create days where you think you know exactly what's going to happen, life can surprise you. And so that's, uh, you know, I have to remind myself that every morning. But um, we try to set up a fairly structured uh, system. And it's different for every person. If you talk to 10 different surgeon scientists, they'll give you 10 different answers on what works for them. So what so far has worked for me has been to have part of my week completely dedicated towards the lab and research and the things that drive that Um which sometimes are in the lab, but sometimes are meetings, sometimes going over data, sometimes writing. Um, and that's Monday to Wednesday. And on Thursdays, I am usually in the OR and usually on call. Uh, and then on Friday, I run my clinic, which is usually not over until at least four. And I still read ultrasounds as part of the other job that I have to do. And so I'm not usually done until eight or nine at night. So it's a bit of a packed week, but I, I prefer to compartmentalize it rather than trying to go back and forth, you know, and be in two places at once on a given day. Emergencies happen though, and sometimes you have to restructure, like cancel a clinic and deal with an emergency. But um, you know, you do your best to try to to do that. And I guess one thing you guys should all hear, because this will be important as you again make plans for yourself, is that um, you do not do this in a silo. This is not possible without there being a massive team behind you. And that team I refer to are the administrative people that are just managing even the clinical practice and fielding the patient phone calls to the person who's running the lab with you, um, to the technicians that are sort of keeping everything on point, to the students that are doing a lot of the experiments, to your colleagues that are on the surgical side that are making sure they help you protect your time so that you can get your research done. Um, there's very few institutions in Canada and the, in the world probably that have figured out how to really support surgeon scientists. It's a, it's a tougher role to really support. Um, and I feel very lucky that where I am, I think that they've got a great recipe. So UHN, U of T, all the different domains down here um, has really figured it out. And there's definitely pockets elsewhere in Canada. I'm not singling out only Toronto. Um, I know surgeon scientists at many other institutions, but when I talk to them, I definitely know that they you know, they may not always have the same amount of support that I'm finding um, as especially a new science, surgeon scientist, someone trying to get things off the ground. They may have had a much tougher slog to get themselves set up than um, than I have. So, um, you know, again, just to remind you that nothing, nothing is quite always as it seems, right? There's usually a massive team behind that. And so it sounds like the job that you do, I think it's it's amazing personally. So looking back, what was your experience like through the entire process, what what aspects did you do really like about it? Some aspects that are some some things that you don't necessarily aren't that keen on, and what would you change about your journey? Um, 
don't know. I wouldn't change anything about the journey. Cause again, I think that's just part of learning about life. Right. I mean, of course we'd like to not have those curveballs, but they, they bring us to where we are. And I think I'm in a great place. I love what I do uh, surgically. I love what I do um, in the lab. And so I wouldn't change anything about the journey because that's kind of what's put me where I am exactly today. Um, one, one thing that I wouldn't do it differently, but I would remind everyone again, especially if you think about medicine, something you'll hear over and over again will be make sure you see the, the, the wide range of any specialty you're considering, because there will always be an operation you love, but there will always be an operation you don't love and make sure that you can handle a day that might bring you any one of those ranges. Um, and so thankfully I can tell you that there's really nothing that I absolutely detest in vascular surgery. There's no operation that I don't want to do. There's some that I feel terrible about having to do. And that's really just because I feel that somehow we've, we've not gotten the patient through, um, you know, a disease process that takes a limb, let's say, and we have to do an amputation. Um, and, you know, we've done our best, but it, it's always to me devastating to realize that their life is at a turning point. So, you know, I, I don't think there's anything I would, again, I don't think there's anything I would change. Um, and there's certainly nothing that I dislike other than, you know, again, there's never enough hours in the day. And so it's the same story you hear from probably everyone, especially during a pandemic, but trying to find a balance so that you don't give over an entire life uh, to a career and forget that there's a family and, and uh, a community around you that, that want you as a human being as well. So it's really, it's, it's probably a lifelong balance, uh, balancing act for us to figure out. Um, so I guess before we wrap up, uh, do you have any final uh, advice for students, whether it's high school or uh, undergraduate, um, kind of aspiring to become a clinical scientist? So kind of doing both. Um, I guess I'd say just do your best to be the best human being that you can be and and everything else kind of comes along with that, right? So, and I don't mean that to sound in, in any way like I'm preaching or giving advice you might not have already heard, but, you know, at the end of the day, a good clinician or a good surgeon is someone who's just at the end of the day, a humanist that that, that loves their, human, their fellow human beings and wants to make sure that they leave the world a better place than they started, right? Um, and I already sort of mentioned to you for the scientist part, it's really, you have to know yourself. You can love the idea idea. But if you get to the lab and you don't enjoy constantly having to pursue a question that needs maybe a different redirect three months later, and you don't want those challenges, be honest with yourself because you're the only person that's going to get you through those long days of grant writing, et cetera. Right. So it's, um, um, there's a little bit of just being honest with yourself as you figure out your path and your journey and there's a place for everyone. So, um, and there's a lot of important roles that have to be done that don't necessarily all have those same titles that we're talking about today. All right, so that concludes our podcast. That's all the questions we wanted to ask you. Uh, we'd like to thank you so much, Dr. Howe, for giving us this unique perspective into being both a physician and a scientist and the research that you do. So uh, thank you so much, and it was a pleasure talking to you. Thank you. You're welcome, guys. Take care, okay? Take care.